0: O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? How majestic is Your name in all the earth. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your love for us. Thank You for Your truth. Thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us, not only in creation and our conscience, through Your written Word, but especially through Your Son, the Word who became flesh. Lord, we pray for our brother this morning that you would give him great liberty in what is a stranger setting for him. That you would speak through him to us. That we would not only hear your word, but do it. Help us to do your word. Help us to be shaped by your word. May we be sensitive to the promptings of your Holy Spirit through your word to conform us into the image of your Son. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. Sam, welcome. You're among friends. You're among brothers and sisters. Thank you, brother.
1: Well, your pastor really is a, a dear friend, and it has been a, a great joy over the years to run into him and uh, let and the Lord allowing our paths to cross at different times in our journeys. And uh, it has been a delight to have been out here before with you folks, and uh, and then to be back today. Thank you for the worship this morning. Uh, my, my heart needed that. And, you know, we think about 10,000 reasons uh, to praise the Lord. And I, I don't even know if, uh, you know, if you sat down with me and I had to write out 10,000 reasons, I mean, literally write them out. Would I get past 100? Would I get past 1,000? Would I get uh, maybe on a, you know, if I had a lot of time and, and put a lot of mind to it, would it, would it be 5,000? Um, I mean, think about the immensity of 10,000 and just uh, the discipline that you would have and I would have to kind of articulate 10,000 distinct, different reasons to praise the Lord. And one day we're going to stand in his presence and 10,000 is going to seem like such a small number. To us, because we will see him as he is. And as I was uh, singing with you and worshiping with you this morning, my heart was was deeply helped and, and served this morning by how the Lord has directed uh, your worship team and those that put together the worship. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to ask you to take your Bible to the 8th Psalm. And what I want to do this morning as you uh, turn there is I want to direct your attention to what I believe is the central point in this psalm. We're going to let David sort of unpack the psalm for us, but I want to, I want to drop into the very central point that is on David's mind. And, and sort of to help us understand that, uh, maybe the best way to do that is to reflect on something that uh, has, is going on in our culture, and uh, especially last year, a lot of people were, were, were reflecting on it. And so let me, let me ask you this question um i'm going to put a uh, picture up on the i 'm not uh, Mindy is going to put a, a picture up on the uh, screen for you this morning. How many of you know what that is? How many of you think you know all right if you have i mean this is ex- i know exactly what it is. Hold your hand up high don't be ashamed there's no uh, well there is a wrong answer, but we're not going to call you out for not for not knowing this uh this is it this is arguably. The most famous footprint ever left by a human being, by a member of our race, other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we're going to boundary him out, and we're going to let all the rest of the race stand on its own. And out of all of our race, this is probably or arguably the most famous footprint ever left uh, by, by a human being. This footprint was made in 1969, so 51 years ago. When Neil Armstrong, and uh, right after him, Buzz Aldrin, became the first humans to put their feet where? On the moon. All right, so here's my question. How many of you were alive when that footprint was made and you're willing to admit it? All right, so hold your hand up high. All right, all the rest of you look around. This is where all the wisdom in in the church reside. So if you want to know stuff, you just look around and and you you get one of these uh, people that raise their hand and they'll probably got a lot of life counsel that they can give you. Now, what I didn't realize was that this footprint, the the actual making of the footprint was televised. Uh, Back back then, television was just coming of age. Uh, uh, Those of you that are under 20 will have no concept of what I'm about to describe for you, but television was actually a piece of furniture that sat in your living room. It it literally was like a long table and there was a little tiny screen, maybe circular or square, and it had these immense rabbit ears that would come uh, up at the top and if you were like if you were really cutting edge, you had this little round loop that you could twist and you could get four channels on this uh, incredible device, and it was a, watching television was a family affair. So you'd get around this thing and you'd watch. And they did have a channel changer. Uh, believe it or not, it was your little brother. Your dad would say, "Go change the channel," run up and <laughs> change the channel. And so, um, in 1969, more than half a billion people—that's one fifth of the Earth's population at the time—witnessed. The making of this footprint. Now, I'm going to ask a second question. Is is there anybody here who actually watched this? I was alive, but I didn't watch this. Anybody actually watched this? All right, now now look around. Hold your hands up high. Now look around. These are the pillars in the church right here. (laughs) Isn't it an amazing thing when you think about the fact that one of the fellow members of our race, the human race... Set his foot on the surface of the moon that you and I look at at night very regularly, and then made his way back here last year. we celebrated the fiftieth anniversary and and there was a lot written about it and and they actually brought the suits that uh, the astronauts wore on that on that uh, trip to the moon and, and so it was just a stunning display in different places of of what, what our race has been able to do, to find its way to the moon and back again. But has it ever struck you that that it is so uh, odd that a race that found its way to the moon managed to lose its way so dramatically and so drastically on this earth? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we uh, observed last uh, week, and I'm sure you at some point, uh, in your liturgical year, your, your, uh, your yearly observance of, of uh, different things in the, in the church life, uh, last Sunday for many churches was the Sunday set apart to recognize the sanctity of human life. And if you want just one brief little window into how far the human race has lost its way, all you have to do is just be uh, impacted by the stunning, shocking statistics that reflect the number of unborn infants that have been uh, ruthlessly deprived of life in our country and around the world. And when those statistics really begin to sit down on your soul, you you do have the question, what has happened to us? How did we get to the moon and how did we lose our way so dramatically on our own planet? And that those two questions or those two thoughts really lead to this question, what can we do about it? What can we do about it? And I think David is coming to that answer in the very, very heartbeat of what he asks in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And, and maybe we could say it this way. As, as David unpacks what he's about to lay out for us in nine verses, here is where he starts. He starts first with a recognition of man's significance. And and he asks the question this way, Lord, why is it that you are mindful of this part of your creation? What is man that he is on your mind? Think of all of the things that, that could be and are on God's mind And David wants to know why this one part of God's creation is so significant. And you can see it in the next line when he says, And the Son of Man, that you have visited him. In other words, God, I want to know what it is about this creature that matters so much to you. Why is he so significant in your sight? That he's always on your mind and always in your heart. This is what Job talks about in in Job chapter 7. When he says, what is man that you should magnify him and that you should set your heart on him? It's a profound question. And if you stop and think about how David asks the question, it's it's evident that, that this is not coming out of nowhere. David has been thinking profoundly about something so this question is observed in a profound context uh, a consideration and that's in verse three what has David been thinking and observing and meditating on when I look at your heavens the works of your fingers the moon so we think David may have uh, been writing this uh, at night perhaps reflecting back to the time when, as a young shepherd, he would watch his father's flocks at night. Maybe later, as the shepherd over Israel, God's sheep, maybe on a night, uh, leading his troops to battle, or uh, just being out and observing the moon and the stars that the Lord uh, had had set in place, David, David began to think. And so when you think about what David is doing, he is observing some of the most spectacular displays of God's creative ability. And he wants to know, as he sees the the moon and the stars, and he thinks about all of that creative ability and majesty and glory that belongs to the one who made them and who keeps them and who set them in their place, he looks at man and he says, "So, Lord, why do you, why does this part of your creation matter more than that?" And if you stop and think about it, it sort of makes sense that we would feel that way, right? If you if you have ever seen uh, a spectacular uh, display of God's nature or God's creative ability, it's, it's stunning. I mean, you live in the backyard of the Rocky Mountains. So you probably drive all over the place and never think about the Rocky Mountains. I grew up in Texas. I grew up in South Texas, way down south by the border, a little town called McAllen. The highest hill we had was the overpass on the highway. (laughs) So I remember coming to Denver and, and for the first time looking at those mountains and being stunned anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? I remember the first time I went to the Grand Canyon. Uh, what's the big deal? It's just a big hole, a whole bunch of water left. And then, you know, we were uh, traveling and we ended up deciding to go. And, and uh, you know how it is, you drive up to this place and you get out and there, there's these trails that you can take. And, and I just remember following the trail and, and walking out into this clearing and then coming up on this fence and looking down over the south rim of that canyon, and it just takes your breath away. Anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? Anybody ever been there? Uh, It it has been a great point of contention in our marriage because early on in our marriage, my wife was asked to speak, uh, and she went to uh, the meeting place, and as part of that time, they took her to Niagara Falls. I've been a lot of places, but I've never been to Niagara Falls. So she's held it over my head. You know, you've gone here and here, but you haven't been here to Niagara Falls. So two years ago, I was preaching in New York. And uh, the pastor who picked me up at the airport, he said, Hey, Brother Sam, Niagara Falls is about 20 miles from here. Would you like to go? I said, Pastor, it would be such a blessing to my marriage if you could do that. And so we went. Stunning, isn't it? And I don't know about you, when, when I see a majestic display of God's creative power, I feel very what? I feel very small. Insignificant. And David is actually flipping that. And he is seeing something that if we don't take the time to notice, we're going we're to read that verse and go right by. David is looking at all of the spectacular display of God's creative ability and power, and all of the beauty of that, and he's looking at this little tiny creature called man, and he says, now I want you to help me understand why you attach such significance to him. Now if we're on the right track, what we've observed in David's consideration ought to be confirmed in the text. There ought to be some divine confirmation of that, and that's the next thing that we see in verses 5 through 8. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. Now, interesting phrase there, works of your hands. Go back up to verse 3. What works of God's hands has David been looking at in verse 3? And down here in verse 6... David is saying, you have given to this creature dominion over those works. Do you ever think for a moment it might have entered David's mind that, that centuries later, one of the members of his race would actually put his foot and leave a footprint on the moon that he was looking at in verse 3. It is a stunning text to me. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatsoever passes along the paths of the sea. I um, have spent an unusual amount of time um, over the last year or so out in California doing recruiting and preaching. And uh, I, I don't like the trip, but I love the destination. Because California has something That Greenville, South Carolina does not. And it's worth my while to get on a plane to go to California to get this. And what's in California that's not in Greenville, South Carolina is In-N-Out Burger. (laughs) How many of you have ever eaten at an In-N-Out Burger? Need I say more? Uh, I I was introduced to In-N-Out Burger years ago, and and I really got into it. Well, I actually love In-N-Out Burgers. Um, they have a secret website you can go on. They have a hidden menu. And uh, if you learn that menu, you can go up to any In-N-Out uh, counter and they have to give you what that menu is. They have a whole clothing line. I have t-shirts. I have socks. I'm getting a hat for Christmas. It's, uh, it's, it's the real deal. And they're run by Christians. They, they are to cows what Chick-fil-A is to chickens. Right? So if you stop and think about that, uh, if you get their fries, there's a little verse underneath. Um, I was I was at an In-N-Out burger one time, and a guy comes up to me, an older guy. Uh, he had an In-N-Out burger outfit on, and he was just sort of asking. It was just really cool. He was walking around asking people if they needed to refill. And so I was sitting there, and, and we struck up a conversation and, and found out that he was retired and had gotten bored, gotten lonely, and so he'd come down to... The In N Out Burger, and he'd gotten a part time job, and he just loved going around and and meeting people. So, we got into conversation, and I asked him what he did before he retired. And his answer was surprising to me. He said, I train whales. Uh, Apparently, he worked for SeaWorld and had been part of the team that uh, trained the different whales that they used. Now, I've never met a person that's trained a whale. So, if, if you'd never met a person that's trained a whale and you had a chance to ask them one question, do you know what you would ask him? I'm going to tell you what I asked him. How do you do that? I mean, I don't have any plans to do that, but how do you train a whale? And, and he said, you take a long stick or you, you get a, a piece of pipe and you put it down uh, at the bottom of the pool where they're in and you get on the other side and you wave something that the whale likes to eat And when they swim over where you want them to swim, you reward them. And you just keep moving that bar up until eventually they're they're, they're leaping out of the pool. And and that's how you train a whale. I sat there (laughs) in, in all of my born days, as I like to say down south. In all of my born days, I don't know if there's any other kind of day you can have. But in all of your born days, did you ever think... That that is how you train a whale. Well. Now stop for a minute and recognize something. In the space of our time this morning, looking at this question in verse 4, Why is it, Lord, that man is so significant to you? We have seen a member of this race put his foot on the surface of the moon, and we have seen another member of this race train a creature that swims through the deepest paths of the seas. So obviously David is on to something. And so that brings us to the second big question that, that David is, is asking in, in the text. So, so, Lord, why is man so significant? And, and secondly, what are the reasons? Lord, I've, I've recognized this, but why? Why is man so significant? What are the reasons behind this? And you find the reason at either end of the psalm. Verse 1 and verse 9 are almost identical. Listen to the text as David wrote it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. O Lord, our Lord, verse 9, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And the idea here is that, that of all the names, take any great name individual, any great ruler, any great founder of a kingdom, take any great name, and there is a name that is even greater, and it is the name of the Lord, and he is ours, he is our Lord. Lord, you belong to us. You are our Lord. We belong to You. And because of that relationship, we understand the beauty and the glory and the weight and the goodness and the magnitude of who You are. And we want that name, and You want that name to be celebrated throughout the earth. You know, I've been reminded and humbled here in the last little bit um, due to uh, some of the circumstances that we're having to work through, uh, to make a really long story short, came a moment uh, where I needed to give attention to a doctrine that I learned way back in my first years of, of seminary training, and it's the doctrine of the Trinity. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's like, how hard can the Trinity be? How do you wrap your mind around the immensity of it? That's maybe why this morning when you were singing 10,000 Reasons, it struck me so incredibly uh, deeply. Because as you get to know the beauty and the complexity and the depth and the magnitude of the God who has become your God, it is, it is amazing and you want everybody to know. But there's a problem and you can see it in verse 1. You have put your glory above the heavens. You see that? It, it's, it's the one phrase in verse 1 that's not repeated in verse 9. You have set your glory above the heavens. In other words, David is recognizing that, that outside of God stepping into our world, his glory, his beauty, his name, his identity. Who He is and what He is like is totally inaccessible to us. But He does want that name magnified throughout the earth. And that's really the next thing that you see David talk about. So Lord, Your glory is above the heaven. You want the entire earth to know that name and to magnify that name, to celebrate that name. So how, how, how will it work? And you know the answer to that because you've read Genesis 1 and 2. You know what this God did? He created what? He created Adam and He created Eve. He created two image bearers. And He had face-to-face, open communication and fellowship with them so that they knew Him intimately. He put them in a place filled with goodness where they could celebrate and and they could understand and participate in everything, in every good thing that he had created for them. And then he said to them, I want you to do something that I'm going to give you the right to do that no other created creature has, including the angelic hosts. You have the privilege and the right to make more image bearers. In fact, I want you to fill up the earth with them. So that all throughout the earth, in every place and in every part, are people in my image who know my name, who know me, and who celebrate who I am and what I am like. Well, it doesn't take a lot of thinking, does it, to know that something went radically wrong with that. And that's the third thing that David speaks to. He talks to the response, the cosmic response to man's significance. And immediately you are brought about uh, and you begin to understand that there was opposition to all of this from an ancient enemy. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy. And his name is the Avenger. For sake of time this morning, you know exactly who that is. It is God's ancient foe who out of arrogance and pride decided that that God's plan did not include enough of him. And so he stepped forward, led a massive cosmic rebellion, and and he enters the garden, enters the stage upon which God is acting out this drama, and he destroys the image of God, mars it, he defaces it, and, and, and he deceives our first parents. And he, as the great robber thief that he is, stole the authority over a broken and cursed world. And Ephesians 2 describes the fact that everything going on in the culture around us, to some degree or another, is being energized at some point or in some place by him. And it's overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, Adam and Eve went on, and they they did fill up the planet with image bearers. We look around, and there are billions, some 7 billion on the planet. But do they know who God is and what God is like? Multiplied millions of them have come to believe that it is absolutely foolish to even think that such a being exists. And you and I call them atheists. And they occupy some of the most learned uh, stations in our economy and in our educational system. We honor these men and these women. There are multiplied billions who have come to the belief that, yeah, God's a great idea, but why just limit him to one? And we can, we can just sort of go all the way out. And pretty soon you have an entire planet who have been deceived by this ancient enemy into the belief that either God doesn't exist, or if he does, he can't be known, as the agnostic would say, or if, or if, or if there is a God, it's not the God of the Bible. And so how does God intend to resolve all of this? And the resolution of this is is stunning. There is resolution from a surprising source. God put something in the mouth of babies and infants. You see that in verse 2? Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. So whoever those babies and infants are, when they use that strength, whatever it is, it stops this ancient enemy. So as we close this morning, uh, let, let's, let's quickly find out who those babies are and what the strength is. So if you'll go over to the New Testament, there's an interesting reference to Psalm 8 and Matthew 21 and for time's sake, I'll, I'll give you the story very quickly. End of the Lord's earthly ministry last week of his life about to begin. He is coming from the Galilee to Jerusalem and the entire crowd with him is becoming convinced because of his teaching and because of his miracles, they are becoming convinced that, that there is something true about him. They are, they are starting to realize That in this man, in Jesus of Nazareth, is actually the identity of their Messiah. And so Jesus sends his disciples and they they get the the colt of the donkey and they bring the animal to Jesus, put him upon it. And as he starts to ride up to the gate of Jerusalem, they start using messianic terms because they recognize... That this is exactly what one of their prophets said would happen when Messiah would show up. That he would come riding on a donkey. And here he is. So they take off their cloaks and they wave palm branches. And they start saying, Hosanna to the son of David. You see that in verse 9. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And as he was coming into the outer skirts of, of Jerusalem, the, the city is hearing all of this uproar. And, and people in the city want to know, so what is all this commotion and who is this person? If you've cruelly found Messiah, who is he? And you can see that in verse 10. And in verse 11, the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus. And he goes into the temple, immediately drives out who, those who sell and buy and, and makes an amazing statement. My house, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then it's like Matthew says, now, now, don't forget this blind and lame came to him and were healed. That's exactly what the Old Testament said, what happened, right? Now, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the jaw dropping things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. Here were little children repeating in the temple what they heard their parents say on the road. And they were incensed. They said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And don't you just love Jesus' answer? Yes. And then he has a question of his own. Have you never read... And the answer to that is, of course you've read. You're the rabbis and the scribes. Have you never read? And then he quotes Psalm 8, verse 2. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. You just found out what the strength is. The strength is this, that all of this is going to be resolved by an anointed, appointed champion who is going to come and deliver his people from the sins that they have committed and the oppression and the brokenness that they are experiencing. And those children in that temple are looking at Jesus and they are saying, he is that anointed, appointed champion. So that's the strength. You now know the secret of. To, to all that God desires to do to reverse the brokenness that the enemy has brought. He is going to do it in the person and in the work of an anointed, appointed champion. And you know who that is now. His name is Jesus. But who are those children? Go over to Hebrews chapter 2 quickly because uh, we need to wrap up here in a, in a moment. But this is the other place in your New Testament where Psalm 8 is quoted. And it begins in verse 5. And the writer of Hebrews is observing something. He he is saying to the reader, Now all of the earth has been submitted to somebody. And it's not to angels. you see that? For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So who was it that? Verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him, a little while, uh, you made him a, for a little while lower than angels. Crown him with glory and honor. And put everything in subjection under his feet. And just so we don't miss it, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And then the writer of Hebrews says, now, now in this present moment, we don't see everything in subjection to him. Would you agree with that? I mean, look around. But even if we don't see that yet, we have seen something. And what we have seen is Him. We have seen Him, the one who is going to bring all of this resolution, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might bring many sons to glory, verse 10. And in verse 12, this Messiah starts to talk. And here's what he says. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Remember Psalm 8, verses 1 and 9? What your name to be known, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Then he says something else in verse 13. I will put my trust in him. And then he says, behold, I and the children God has given me. So let me ask you a question. Do you know anybody that has come to know the truth about Jesus and has become a child of God? And Jesus would look at that person and say, that one is my brother. That one is my sister. And you know what I think? I think I'm talking to a whole room full of them this morning. How is God going to resolve all of the brokenness on this planet? More, more, more to our case, how is God going to resolve all the brokenness that goes on around the city where we live? How is, how is he going to resolve the brokenness in your family? How is he going to resolve the brokenness in you? And the answer is through a man named Jesus. And you know his name. Would you bow your head very quietly this morning? I'm not going to give an invitation in the sense of you need to come forward, but I want to ask you to think about something. I want to ask whether or not in your heart of hearts you actually believe what David and Matthew and the writer of Hebrews have said to you. There is a man, and God has visited his creation with that man, and that man is here, and his mission is to resolve all of the brokenness. And the question for you this morning is this. Have you come to know him as your own personal deliverer, your own personal savior? And if you haven't, I would really encourage you this morning to visit with someone here. I mean, this is why this whole church gathers together to worship on a Sunday morning. Maybe you're here this morning and and you do know the Lord and He is your personal deliverer and you've come to Him and you've repented of your sins and you've placed your faith and your trust only in Him. But you look around in your life and you see a lot of brokenness. I mean, maybe your marriage is just about to, to experience massive brokenness. Maybe it's your health or your finances or, or maybe, maybe there are our extended family members, children, grandchildren, aunts, uncles. Maybe it's a neighbor and you're watching that neighbor and his family about to blow up and you see all of the brokenness and this morning, you know a name that can fix it all. You know a name that can forgive that. You know a name that can restore that. You know a name that can, can return all that has been lost. And His name is Jesus. And you know Him because He's your Savior. And maybe you'd say, you know what, Brother Sam, I, I need my Savior to continue to heal and forgive and restore in my life. And maybe this morning, Psalm 8 has been the impetus for a renewed season in your life where God will be dealing with you and restoring you and forgiving you. And finally, maybe you're a person who has enjoyed all of that, but you've never really shared that with others. And as you live in the midst of all of this brokenness, maybe over the next 30 days, God will give you an opportunity to say to somebody, you know what? I know someone who can fix that, who can forgive that, who can restore that, and his name is Jesus.